1: Hello and welcome to Father Leader, a podcast assessing leadership and what makes someone a good leader. Are they born or are they made? Leadership qualities and more. This is a podcast you want to subscribe if you want to be a better leader. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Follow the Leader, a podcast about leadership and what what makes one a good leader. If they are born or made, in Follow the Leader, I interview a variety of leaders to understand how they became the leader and what makes them effective. In this episode, we're speaking with Rabbi Josh Fass. Um, Yeshua Fass is co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, and has served as their organization's executive director since 2002. After... I'll give a little bit of background on how it came. After an Israeli relative was murdered in 2001 by a terrorist bombing, he was compelled to embark on a personal mission, which in the following years made significant impact on the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Together with Tony Gelbart, he founded Nefesh Benefesh which revolutionized Western Aliyah by removing the financial, professional, and logistical obstacles that prevent many from uh, individuals from actualizing their dreams, including myself. I went to Nefesh Benefesh to make Aliyah. Just a little plug there. The organization has revamped the Aliyah process, making the idea of moving to Israel a more realistic option for many. Since it's established in 2002, the organization has assisted over 60,000 Western women. If I'm wrong on the number, feel free to... Okay. update that, um, and has maintained the retention rate of over 90%. Olim contributed to greatly greatly to the to social, economic, and demographic welfare of Israel society by serving the IDF, settling in Israel cities and the periphery, and boosting economic growth while infusing the country with idealistic enthusiasm and optimism. So in, in short, he took on a really big task about revolutionizing Aliyah, making a more seamless transitional, um, you know, I would say prospect for people to make aliyah, and this is one of the reasons why we're, you know, the reason why we're, we're having this, you know, conversation now is really to focus on what made him and what got him to this point and what continues to drive him. So, Josh, welcome to the show, and I hope I covered everything. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of blanks in the background from your time in, you know, it's all great. In Boca, etc. Thank
0: you, Ellie, for having you on the podcast.
1: Um, yeah, it's it's my pleasure. So, you know, just to jump in there, I mean, we, there's a lot going on. I mean, and before we even get into the Nefesh benefesh side of things, you know, why don't we go back a little bit further growing up? I mean, you know, this is what I, I, I like to ask people. Did you, you know, did you feel that you were like, you know, people were following you or did you take on any, you know, in the you know youth activities? Did you become a, a leader? You know, later on, you became a rabbi. But let's go before even there. And a rabbi is a de facto leader of a community or students, etc.
0: Um, In my youth, the only leadership role that I took was uh, I was part of a youth movement, NCSY, National Conference of Synagogue Youth. And when I was in eighth grade, I was on the regional board, um, which was not a natural fit. I was very uncomfortable and very shy to get up in front of kids um, or peers. Um, I like getting stuff done but I wouldn't describe myself as a leader or, or people following me. Mm-hmm. I remember I was pushed to to run for president of the board against a very popular, good-looking guy. <laughs> I lost um, horribly because all the girls voted for the other guy. Um, and uh, But uh, I, I, I didn't see myself, you know, sometimes you see in yearbooks from high school, mm-hmm. you know, natural-born leader or, you know... Uh, Going to be the class president or likely to become congressman. I, I did not have that. Well, so, so, that, so
1: but, but you said something there that that I wanted to touch upon. You said you like you like to, to get stuff accomplished, right? Yeah. And so that is, you know, the quiet leaders you know tend to just focus and do what they want and just go, you know, just have their the goal in sight and just focus on that and let all the other talking, etc. You know, it's not an inspirational type of leader. It's a leader by action. Um, did you see that growing up, and is, is that something that you just realized that that's what I do, that you're,
0: you just lead by action? I, I always wanted to become a doctor. I was pre-med. I was, uh, when I was growing up, I think my favorite doll was that invisible man with the organs and stuff. <laughs> um, I, I've been dreaming about becoming a doctor basically my, my entire life. Uh, and then I, had, I finished college early, so I had a year off. And I started doing research in Columbia and I lost, they lost the grant funding. And after a few weeks, so I had a year to wait to get to, to get into medical school, to move into medical school. So I decided, you know, I have a year off. Let me, let me start doing some ordination classes, smicha classes. And I fell in love with the rabbinate. I fell in love in, with teaching during that year. I taught in all different avenues. I was doing conversion courses in Lincoln Square Synagogue. I was teaching in conservatives places, temple and manuals. I was doing afternoon classes and Sunday school and adult education, and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with tapping into a, a point of inspiring other individuals. That at the end of the year, I, um, I realized that if I won the lottery, I wouldn't go to medical school, even though that's how I was always, uh, what was always my focus, but to rather veer into a, a life of inspiring and teaching. And that put me on the path of the rabbinate mm-hmm. and put me on my path to go to Boca Raton, Florida for six years.
1: So, so how did you, you know, come to that? I mean, so what part of it did you really find, you know, again, I, 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 you, know, you said the, you know, inspirational aspect, trying to inspire people. But, you know, that is, you know, that's already the, the leadership path, right? When you become mm-hmm. a rabbi or any type of clergy, in a sense, you are becoming, people look to you. And when they look to you, generally you have to be some type of leader. And so when did you realize that, you know, you, you actually had a knack or you were able to, you were good at it?
0: I guess just by responsiveness of being open, very transparent and very open with, when I educate and open with uh, with being intellectually honest and textually honest. And uh, I think... It, it gathered a tremendous response. And I think uh, in that year of teaching, I saw that it resonated with, with individual students or peers or adults or people three times my age. And I realized that uh, I have to overcome certain you know, personal handicaps of the shyness or the other elements of seeing myself in that role. And, uh, and once I started to overcome that, it, it became a natural transition of, of me taking on those different different uh, tasks and roles. Got
1: got it. And and so... You know, from there, you know, you went. To, you ended up in Boca. Mm-hmm. Did you want to become a public, like? A, oh, yeah. a, You wanted a public. No, re- I,
0: I loved every second.
1: You you, you, you you wanted all eyes on you. You I, wanted? I, I didn't to, want
0: to all eyes. It was. It was. It's. It's all eyes on me. Is very. For the first four years, I think, I got ill before I got up. And, <laughs> you like the ball player? You know, I, get, getting sick before. So got five minutes before I would get up and give a dress. I would go to the bathroom. I would get sick. I would leave that the graphics out. And But it, it, uh, the nerves were so intense. But I knew that I had to overcome that. Uh, and it was not like a genetically, I'm not genetically wired for those public positions. H- ironic that now I spend most of my life in those, in those roles. And I don't get sick. And my kids are, are shocked that I, I once was. Um, so, and I think that also builds you as a certain person of overcoming certain things that are majorly... Um, major obstacles for a person, but once you realize that you can't accomplish your maximum by falling prey to those handicaps. And, and that itself was a transition. And, and I loved the six years of being in the rabbinate tremendously. I loved the, the role of inspiring. I loved the role of being equipped, to able to help people who needed help um, in all different stages of need. And I love most of all being part of people on a very personal level, the Some of the relationships I've built over those six years because I was there during death and I was there during the most intense happy and the most intense sad and grief creates a bond between two individuals that are unparalleled. And if I miss anything of the rabbit today, it's that personal connection on such an in-depth, intense level. But uh, the
1: rest, I couldn't go without. <laughs> so what was one of the more challenging parts to that? I mean, let's go, how big at the time, I mean, Boca now is, you know, yeah. again, a shout out to Rabbi Goldberg, Ephraim Goldberg, who's yeah. doing a fantastic job. But back then, this is going back, you know, to what, 2000 and when you left?
0: 2000. I left in 2002.
1: So how, it wasn't nearly as big of a community no, as it was, it was much, it was a much smaller community. Yeah. Right. So. What was some of the challenges that you had? I mean, you know, again, you know, I, my father's a pulpit rabbi. I, I grew up in, in the house. It was always small. But there are always challenges, right? The challenges, and I'm not talking about an individual aspect, too, but much more of a, you know, a crossroads that, that the community might have had that you felt that they were looking all eyes to you in a sense.
0: A big challenge is um i'll give you two two distinct challenges that you have when you have a very diverse and prides itself on its diversity a diverse community or congregation or population it's very hard to make sure that you're servicing and giving everything to the individuals of where they are and what they need without sacrificing other people's needs and wants and concerns and at the same time on top of that not sacrificing your own values and your own integrity especially in a position that you want to crowd please and people please and it's very easy to say yes to everyone around you but at the end but everyone is in that network and everyone's connected so saying yes to one individual affects the other individual's Life and religiosity and expression of being. At the same time, at the end of the day, you have to be true to yourself and true to your own values. So that's one major obstacle. Another major obstacle at that point, I was very young. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I was tasked with different roles, and I'm so young, it took a while to gain that trust and to gain that uh, that level of confidence in myself and for them as well. So
1: it was like being so young was like almost a handicap. Absolutely.
0: I mean, it felt great to be in a role so young, but uh, already in the second and a half year of my role there, I was on the rabbinical court. So I'm dealing with divorces and adjudicating cases, and the people are sitting across from you in their 60s and 70s and 50s, and you're this 20-year-old pitzkala who's, who's mediating <laughs> Jewish jurisprudence. It's not, it's not the did, did you Did you feel overwhelmed at times? Of course. I think it's all-consuming. I think uh, the role of a pastor is all-consuming, especially in a digital age that at 24 hours a day people people can have access to you and each person's perspective is their priority and their priority is being urgent, even though it's not urgent. So you have individuals, hundreds of individuals who think that it's crisis and they have 24 hours of access and in their mind and their perspective and the perception, it's crisis. So it's 24 mm-hmm. hours of just dealing with individuals needs even though you might think they're sophomoric or not so uh, intense
1: got it so you know so after that right so six years of the rabbinate, what made you then decide you know I mean I know th- there was a, 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 the, the, the the terror the terror you know the terror attack but thinking and doing are very different right Absolutely. I mean it's a major I mean and most people think have dreams it's nothing to in- enact it, right? You know, it took me forty years to enact my dream of aliyah, but it takes a long time to do, and not not even a long time. It just takes a certain type of personality to do it. So, what made you think that? Okay, I, I have an idea. We need more people in Israel. We need more people making aliyah. What made you think that I'm going to take this upon me? What made you think that you could actually think you could, you know, even accomplish? An iota of what you wanted to do
0: when my cousin was killed in the uh, latter part of 2001 it recalibrated my compass uh, my wife and i when we got married we had our ali bust our 10-year plan of moving to israel we were raised in very zionist families we saw our future in israel we wanted to raise our family in israel ironically the more that we became entrenched in rabbinic um, uh, role the more distant that dream of Aliyah became. And with the death or with that that terror attack, it really recalibrated our priorities and made me look into the mirror and ask myself, what am I doing? I'm about to sign a 10-year contract with the synagogue, with the shul, and, and what happened to my initial zeal, initial idealism. So it really rocked my boat. And it took a few months to really have true introspective conversations of trying to recalibrate that, and and I started sharing, and I said to my wife at that point, we have to move to Israel, what happened to us? What happened to us? We we were so off of our initial track, and we detoured for good reasons, and it's Mm -hmm. justified, and we're doing good work, but what happened to our initial path? And sharing with other individuals that I wanted to move, or we wanted to move to Israel, I surprisingly heard a response that I didn't anticipate. I heard people saying, we also do. We also do but. Because at that time, for already two decades, a thousand people make Aliyah from North America. No one's moving to Israel. Um, No one's thinking of Aliyah as being a successful upward mobile move for individuals. So I expected people to say, okay, you're crazy. You're absolutely nuts. You're leaving all of this. You're leaving Boca and your role and your house and your community for what? But I didn't hear that. I heard from so many individuals. We also want to. We also want to, but... We also want to, but how are we going to find a job? We also want to, but we can't afford sending a lift. We also want to, but we don't know anyone. We also want to, but the bureaucracy is nightmarish. And I kept on hearing this this chorus of we also want to, and I realized that the low number of North American aliyah was not indicative of a waiting passion or a lack of Zionism, just the opposite. People want to move. People wanted to move. Zionism was very much alive, but no one was addressing their concerns or their needs or their wants. And Israel always looked at Aliyah as as Israel as being a haven or a refuge for people running away from something, duress, distress, anti-Semitism, persecution, economic distress, Mm -hmm. but never looked at Aliyah or Israel as being an opportunity, an opportunity of an expression of Zionism. And because of that, because of that different orientation, Aliyah from North America, or let's call it Aliyah of choice, um, was never addressed. And therefore, if a person moved in past years, their needs are completely different from an individual's running away from something. And since they weren't addressed, it never was successful. So in hearing that over and over and over again, and just coming off of a tragedy, and also coming off of recalibrating my own compass of wanting to move to Israel, and also coming from six years of trying to address individuals' problems Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day, I'm like, why, these are issues also, why can't I take my, my energy and my efforts and address it to something more national, take the personal level on the micro level of effectuating change for that person, but let's take it on a national level and on a macro level and trying to make a difference for Israel. And to take some of the pain and some of the grief and channeling it with that added level of being a pastor for six years, being a rabbi for six years and see whether or not we can effectuate change. And it's a huge, huge leap of faith, a huge jump. And talk about if you're nauseous for two, you know, for two <laughs> minutes before you get up and speak to 500 people. Yeah, You're nauseous by, by, by taking your family and uprooting them from stability to a completely unstable future.
1: Uh, so, so, you know, the thing I want to focus here, what you're saying is, you know, I, I hear you. I hear the fact that, you know, you're hearing from other people that there's, you know, they want to as well. And you know you're starting to hear, and you're, but you know, for me, right? I made aliyah, and I know people wanted to make aliyah. They look to me, and they look to others that they, they're in, yeah. inspired. It didn't mean I wanted to create a whole organization. And there wasn't there was one organization. I think at the time it wasn't very popular. It was pre, you know, I forgot what it was called. Um, Tila. Yeah, yeah thank yeah. Tila. Right, that, that was pre you, but it wasn't nearly as no. It was an cohesive. It wasn't organized. Yeah. It wasn't nearly. What nefesh ben no, it, was edu-
0: it wasn't a, a problem solving. It was an educational. Um, to, yes, to inspire. People. Yeah. So I
1: remember when my sister I, I remember that's what it was there, yeah. and so but to to make that leap and to not only make the leap but to say okay, I'm going to take it upon myself and create. Because you're creating a movement, right? you not only but you're also right. you're, you're also battling Israel, right? It's a major. Major obstacle, and unfortunately, that's what you know. That's yeah, how we describe yeah. it—an obstacle to saying, "Okay, I'm going to create something where I'm going to inspire people. I'm going to help people. I'm going to, you know, fulfill their dreams of moving here." And you know, I, the daunting task of, you know, trying to reeducate Israel as a whole on what Aliyah is about. Coming from North America is not like you're saying it wasn't about, you know, escaping. You know, right? mm. It was much more about the Zionistic and the opportunity aspect to sure. it. But getting to that point and, and saying to yourself, you know, with your wife is you No, know, I, I you know what? The aliyah is just not good enough for me. I wanna help others make Aliyah. And and this is the dream I had. This is the vision I have. You know, when how long did it take you to come to come to that?
0: So let's say um, a few weeks after the tragedy, and a few weeks of just feverish conversations with people, I registered as a nonprofit. I didn't say anything to anyone in my shul or anyone on my board. And, uh, and I took a good look. I think for, there are two different types of leaders. You're talking about a leadership uh, a podcast. There are leaders who have that genetic code that they're born to lead, and mm-hmm. they just have that charisma that people follow them. And I think there are other individuals that have maybe that dormant genetic code and that when they attach themselves to a cause um, and they're honest to their strengths and weaknesses um, and they link themselves to that cause, they, they, they try to move mountains. And uh, I did a true, real analysis of what my strengths and weaknesses were. And I think besides being passionate about a cause and knowing Fully every detail about that cause, because the worst thing is to spend all your effort and and energy into something, then realizing that the thing exists two blocks down, mm-hmm. um, is equally to those two components is finding a partner to complement and supplement some of your 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 talents and your skills. And I uh, coupled with Tony Gilbert at that time. I shared him shared with him my dream of doing something. Uh, Tony was in Boca as well. Tony was a congregant a congru- of mine in okay. Boca. I shared with him after some of the research that I did, and I did a lot of research. I wrote on i signed a non disclosure with the, the the Jewish agency. I went up to New York for a couple of weeks, looked at all the dormant files of people who made Ali, who wanted to make Aliyah and didn't move. So how do you even get how do you how would you get there? How'd, I had, I had phone calls, had I, phone calls.
1: and they, they had no problem sharing it with you.
0: You find the right person. Okay, you, you just keep on knocking on doors. When you're a Mashugat to something, when you're Meshuggah on something, you don't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, found a, a mar- someone to donate their time in a market research company, BBDO. Someone has some time on their hands and they did a full analysis of some of the statistics that I brought to their table. The files of people who who wanted to go and never actualized their aliyah, people who moved and came back, looking at the retention rate, recidivism as well, and analyzing it. And then once I realized that there could be a solution presented to this and I brought it to Tony Gilbert, and I said, am I crazy here? Am I crazy or am I into something? And he kicked it around for a bunch of days with his own team. came back and he said, not only are you onto something, but I'll be your partner. And that was not where I was addressing, mm-hmm. but it was fantastic because I realized how much I needed him and certain holes that I had for my own. Well, what background. was Tony's background? Tony's background is, A, he's a marketing genius, um, and he's a, a tremendously successful businessman. And uh, his attachment to nefesh from day one is, I'll be connected to this if we run it as a business, okay. a business with a heart. But this is not going to be run like a nonprofit, which we'll get to a little bit later mm-hmm. on, which has really upped my game a bit of how I, what I've learned over the years and how I address this institution. And I think a lot of our successes is that we don't treat it as a regular nonprofit, but we treat it and run it like a, like a business, uh, business with a heart. <laughs> And uh, so once, once I got Tony on board, uh, then, we, then we went to Israel. And we wanted to make sure that there was uh, receptivity on the Israel side because what we were doing took a lot of testosterone. You're basically saying, since 1948, you guys don't really know what you're doing. That your entire orientation to Aliyah in Israel has been this. And we Americans sitting comfortably in Boca Raton, Florida are coming to teach you how to do it differently, even though we have never done anything in the world of immigration. took a lot of guts and a lot of chutzpah. And in, in, in retrospect, it was ridiculous that we actually did it. <laughs> and we bounced around from different personalities, from the president of Israel to the prime minister of Israel, to the economic minister of Israel, to the foreign affairs, to the chief rabbi. And through Tony's connections as well and other connections, we were able to manage and orchestrate these meetings and the resounding response that we got from everyone is, we need this desperately. We don't know how to do this, and that mitigated the risk a bit for me. But still, I what are we what, how are we going to put how are we going to put into it action action? And then slowly getting traction. And then we I like, raised like every every dollar I was raising was uh, we raised ten fifteen thousand dollars for me. That was astronomical poke out a few bunch of full-page ads in newest Jewish newspapers just to see if there was a response to my email to my mailing address mm. uh, post office address <laughs> and hundreds of applications hundreds of letters started coming in so so empirically we hit an artery so not only was there receptivity on the israel side from that incredible chutzpah but we hit an artery of a need so once you have passion mm. and once you know that there's a need on both levels, on the Israel audience, and in the, and, and the, and the clients themselves. And you have a partner that's willing to complement some of your strengths and weaknesses. Um, I felt that after a few more months of, of kicking the tire on this idea that it was time to tell my congregation that I was leaving, and I left in January 2002 and exclusively focused on Nefesh from 2000, January 2002 to July 9, 2002, those six, seven months, and made Ali on the first plane. First plane on 419 people on a jumbo jet. Prime Minister of Israel was waiting for us on the bottom, didn't anticipate that at all. There's huge fanfare, tons of uh, energy and, mm-hmm. and celebration. And then the next morning, like, what the hell do I do now? <laughs> we got 419 people who moved to a different country because you promised them something. And what about the next cohort that's coming? And you might have had a shoestring budget and you might have had four or five staff members working for you. And now this is, is this just a fluke or is this a real institution? And the next 17 years is just. And, and so been modifications of that,
1: exact. But again, so you know, a lot of it, you know, in business also, a lot of it is follow your passion. right? Mm-hmm. Follow your the best type of business is something that you're passionate about. You're able to really, it's not considered work per se. Right. It's considered just you know you're trying to build and fulfill your dream, etc. And so you know, getting to that right, and you, you know, the first plane, like you're saying, you had 419 people follow you because that's really what they were doing. Yeah. And then as time went, you know. It just, it became really a, you know, I would say like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It became like a, it's escaping me now, but, you know, it spread like wildfire. Revolution. It, 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 it It became exactly that. It became something where people are really, you know, following and saying, you know what, because even I remember back then, I had a friend of mine who was single, like, oh, you know what, I wanted to make Aliyah, but Nefesh B'Nefesh was able to really help me out. Yeah. And he made Aliyah, and he's yeah. been here ever since. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, when did you realize that, you know, you had to do more than just what you are doing, the 14, you know, the one plane came, and then the second plane, and when did you start setting up? And when so, did you... So i you. And it, it, even more so is... You had to build a following, not only, it's really there in America, Correct. right? The following, getting out there, speaking, getting people to buy into the dream, buy into what Never Nevish could do. And there's a ton of skepticism, I'm sure.
0: I mean, skepticism, when I started, Aliyah was a four-letter word. I remember when I was trying to garner support, not only financial, but just support within community. I spoke at a, I'm not gonna say an institution that we all love, but I spoke at an institution and I started speaking about North American Aliyah. I somehow bribed someone to allow me to speak for five minutes Mm -hmm. at their board meeting. And the CEO of of the institution said, we don't say that word. We don't say North America and Aliyah in one sentence. We have an old historic agreement with Ben Gurion that you don't look at us as a reservoir for immigrants. We support you financially but we don't talk about those words. I said, that's ridiculous. And I'm challenging, there's some individuals, your constituents are looking to move to Israel. You're supposed to serve your constituents. Let's work together to somehow stop. They asked me to leave. This is in 2002. (laughs) And now the same individual who asked me to excuse myself from the room, um, his sister, his brother, his kids (laughs) made Aliyah with us. So that itself was, uh, there's a cultural change. That uh, that I've been. Besides the successes of how many people have moved here, and the retention rate that we just completely revolutionized, uh, it's it's the the cultural norm making Aliyah normative um, in Israel, where uh, in America, which has been a, a major accomplishment for the organization. But there have been seminal going back to your question, there have been seminal events that that required us to reboot or reassess and recalibrate, and we're doing it one right now upstairs, uh, mm. where I came from. Um, one, I look at us as being a boutique institution from 2002 to 2005. We were able to cherry-pick who we wanted to help. We inspired the people that we felt had the most success rates here. We helped them. The budget was manageable, a couple of million dollars. That itself is a mm. lot of money, but to raise $2 million, help help a few hundred individuals, that's great. In 2005, the Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, right before his second stroke, he loved Nefesh. He thought that we were just chutzpahedik and, mm-hmm. and creative, and we ran it like a, like a business. And he, he made a revolutionary, historic decision that for the first time in Israel's history, there will be Prime Minister's funding to an outside body in charge of immigration. And he was a bulldozer, as we know, and he called in the Jewish agency in the cabinet meeting, and he said, I want to do this. I know it affects you and affects your monopoly and affects even our constitutional, whatever that is mm. in Israel, um, <laughs> contracts with a Jewish agency, but I want to start funding this, this alternate track of aliyah of choice through nefesh. And that, that changed us because all of a sudden you have a prime minister who's giving you funding directly from the prime minister's budget. That means you're at the highest level of institutional recognition. And it makes you have to look at yourself differently. But at the same time, 2005 to 2008, were the most probably the most difficult years for us because the Jewish agency and other institutions who didn't want a new kid on the block really pushed us away. Um, and it took three years of real ulcer created yeah. years to get to a point that in 2008, there was real mediation. I'm talking about real mediation of us sitting together with federations as, as moderating and other professionals to create a real working viable Relationship, and agreement. And in 2008, we signed this incredible agreement with the Jewish Agency, basically saying that they have obviously still power of video, vetoing who is eligible to move to Israel. It's called Zaka'ut, which is, I'd rather not have. <laughs> and the rest of it would be like this one stop shop, will be under Nefesh's responsibility. So all of a sudden, we went from a mom and pop store to Prime Minister's recognition to all of a sudden um, having. Having the keys to basically being the only address in the channel for all North American Olim. And that means that there's no more cherry picking, and there's basically all of a sudden being in a role that you have to be everything to everyone, um, from blue collar workers to families to singles to religious to unaffiliated. And that means all of a sudden a diversity of talent, a diversity of skill set, and a whole diversity of staff to, be, to address those issues. And whole different programming that you're doing pre in in America, and all uh, different programming that you're doing post after they arrive. Sure. and obviously it shoots up your your staffing needs and your budget so, to so, astronomical so, heights.
1: So, so that's so that's where so. So you know that's a you know that's a major change, right? And so you know how did you start you know staffing? I mean, it's a it's a undertaking. I mean, you know, it's a major you know, aspect when you're all of a sudden getting the recognition and you're being put on the same level of, oh, you never spent effort. Now you're a government, in a sense, yeah. agency. Quasi, yeah. uh, quasi. I mean, but, yeah. no, you know, it, it's, it's an institutional. It, it's, it's, it's a major thing where you're saying to yourself, wow, I, you know, I don't think, you know, I ever expected it to be no. that way. But you have to then r- ramp up tremendously. So how was that? You know, again, they're following you. You're the leader of... of it's, it's, and
0: it's you, You're doing it out of, out of necessity. is causing major changes and making sure that you're surrounded by very talented people. Um, constantly looking for talent that will pave the next bunch of years for the organization and not just band-aiding what we have now. Um, and, and looking for that leadership that can work with you to anticipate needs... And to also have that creativity and professionalism that uh, that can take the organization to the next stage, and 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 doubling down, doubling down in your your, your legal um, interactions in your HR department of uh, learning more of where you are, because if everyone else is looking at you at a different stage, but you still look at yourself as being in a garage startup, mm. you have to quickly adjust adjust that that self perception to what other individuals are looking at at what you're doing and what your institution stands for
1: did you ever lose you know the the spark at some point in time I mean, you're doing this if a i long lose time. a
0: spark then i'm not gonna I, I then, mean, I, then i give over the i mean you, the you, you, you
1: do you're doing a long time i mean you i'm sure there were times where you're like beat down and like oh, i oh. mean like you know but not, not only were you again not only were you building but you're also raising money and raising money is, is hell, is, yeah. <laughs> it is it is not fun. And you know, you're raising money to fund and to to, to build Nefesh benefesh yeah. This is be again before everything with the government. I mean it is
0: even the government. Government gives us pennies to what our to what our budget is.
1: Correct. So it, it, it it's you know, it's daunting. I mean, you know, how did you surround and how did you get the right people around you to really help you know, build it's build finding, you up. It's
0: finding the right people. It's also learning learning the right skills. You can't rely on everyone for forever. You have to take on talent and take on partners and then learn from them. Um, you're not looking at them as taking on that, that full responsibility. You're you're using them to complement what you have, supplement what you don't have, and and then but learn in that transition. And there's a, so much that I've learned. I've learned finances. I've learned fina- how to do financial reports, how to read financial reports, how to how to stand up in front of savvy businessmen and be able to speak their language, and get over the the, the discomfort of asking for an ask, which is and surrounding yourself and teaching other people who can do the same. It's a uh, it's a challenge. And to answer your question, uh, the moment that I don't have the spark or the love for this, then I give it over to somebody else. It, it would not. It's not a service to the hundred staff that we have and the thousands of people that we bring a year and the tens of thousands of people that we bought to have someone in a leadership role who doesn't feel it. Um, despite everything, been, we've had really rough days, mm-hmm. uh, rough weeks, rough months, and uh, I still came to work yeah. <laughs> with a spark. Yeah. I, I think there's one time over like 17, 18 years that I, I turned to my wife and said, I don't want to get out of bed. This one morning, and you can count them on a on your on a hand. That uh, on one hand of just days that you're like, I don't think I can fight it. Have you, you know, as
1: as the years have gone by, have you seen people that you brought in? Have they? Have you seen them become leaders in their own right? Have you, you know, absolutely? Help, have, have you been? I mean, a- is that something that conscious that you, you, yes. you're conscious of or trying to? Say, okay, this person,
0: I see, there's something in them. It's a great question. It's a great question. I, I'm constantly looking, how do we foster new leadership? And giving breaks to a younger generation that I received. If I didn't get a break, if Rabbi Brander didn't give me responsibilities <laughs> when I was a 22-year-old, mm-hmm. that were responsibilities usually given to a 30-year-old, I wouldn't be here today. And, and I appreciate that break and that trust and that confidence and that learning curve. And so I look for that. And I also, there's a different work ethic, there's a different passion, there's a different even technology of wherewithal and also just knowledge that comes to the table. We are doing a major transition right now um, of taking my old directors, five major VP of directors and shifting them into a different role of, Future planning instead of current operating management, and taking five young um, m- mid-level managers and bringing them up to division heads, mm-hmm. um, because I believe that they will be unbelievable five ten years from now, and uh, and I think the organization needs the operating management and also the long-term vision and leadership and highway building, and to do to wear both hats is at disservice to both our clients and to the rest of the staff. And that itself is finding the five or six stars and over the last couple of years and slowly giving them more responsibilities for them to trip and to learn and to even have one-on-one chavusa's time with mm-hmm. them to teach them what you would do differently and how would they do different, do things differently and then giving them this role. Right now, if you go upstairs, there's a new division head who is meeting with 29 new staff members that he's now responsible for. He used to be their peer. Now he's shifting into a role of being their director, which is a huge, huge, huge responsibility and a huge transition for somebody. And I just gave, mm-hmm. just gave a little intro of what I envisioned for this team. Give a little pep talk just now. That's when I, where it came yeah. from, and also giving them the skill sets we we're, we're bringing in. Professionals to give them that those training wheels of of helping them with time management, with personal personality management. So,
1: so so I was just about to ask you that as well. Is 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 giving them the right tools, right? Because you know, you know, the one the one thing you realize is even if you're a born leader or a made leader, you're always evolving, right? You're continuously learning. And, and part of that learning process is, is training, right? It's just like anything else. If you want to be good at something, 100%. you got to practice. You got to practice. You got to you make mistakes and you overcome them, and you try not to make this, them again. And so, you, so you bring in people and you really help coach in a sense. Really bring coaches in to try and foster and minimize the mistakes that that they could be making.
0: Also, it's in itself, it's teaching them a sense of humility as well. It, it, you can't be an effective leader if you don't have the humility to realize that you don't know what you don't know and you need help. Um, You can't, and to be the best or to try to improve or to want to improve requires you to say that what we're doing is not 100%, what I'm doing is not 100%. And even when I tell, for me, it's also a litmus test when I say to them, I'm bringing in a coach to teach you this, I'm bringing a coach to that, and to see and to gauge their responses. Those true leaders, or those who could be our good leaders or great leaders, will say, "Oh my god, thank you so much for the opportunity! I can't believe you're investing, and 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 investing in my talents, investing in my skills." Those who walk at it and say, oh, and "Then you're like, I don't think you yeah. have the stuff. Yeah. You think you're hot stuff at 25 years old because what you had a job last few years. You don't think you can learn." I would college to have to have five hours mm-hmm. with a with a with a, with a life coach or a manager coach or. A professional coach, or an MBA person teaching mm-hmm. me trips, or even someone teaching me trips in Excel—anything. Yeah. Just constant. If you have a drive to to learn and to improve, it only trickles down to the people that you're trying to affect and lead.
1: So, you know, as we're, we're going to wind down in in about five six minutes. So, you know, how do you communicate, right? Because again, part of being a leader is you're being infectious. That's what I think I was looking for. Infectious. you 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 are exuding your your charisma your passion into others right that is because unless they take the cue from you i mean no. that is without a doubt they like you say you walk in and people will see you're the forefront you're the you're the person that people look up to
0: you know how do you communicate that how do you Delicit. you, you live it. You, know, you asked the question beforehand um do you still have that spark we wouldn't have an effective organization if i didn't have that spark So I I come in, not only do I have to have that that natural connection and passion to what we're doing, but I know that there are a hundred people who are feeding off of that energy. And even though I might have relied on a donor and that donor balked and now we're a million dollars in a deficit because of that, I have to put on that infectious (laughs) smile and I have to walk through the crowds and rah, rah, this. and, And when a person is fetching about something that's trivial compared to what... Other in management's dealing with, you have to address it as if it's a crisis for them. That comes back to the rabbinic pastoral um, focus and skill set. And and share and lead that way. If you don't feel it, and if you don't uh, live it, then you can't possibly lead.
1: Got it. So what is the biggest challenge you think you're facing today? I mean, you just said, and I, I think you already addressed one of them is, and this could be the one, is thinking and separating into two aspects, right? One is the future, right? Mm-hmm. So you're bringing people up, and then bringing some of the younger ones up into. And so you're really thinking, you know, five years ahead, which is really exact. People don't. I, I don't know many companies that are able to really focus like that. Nonprofits, etc., where they focus. Okay, well, this is what we're doing now. But where, what are we, where we're going to be in two years, in five years, in ten years, fifteen yeah. years? Now, was that one of the challenges that you faced
0: or is there something else beyond that? So many challenges. There's a challenge of... of Where do we start? <laughs> There's a challenge of, of being in touch with the trends of your customers, of your clients, and constantly being the right address for them and the right solution. I call it solution peddling. We have to make sure that that we're peddling the right solution and throwing the right life jacket and life saver to individuals. There's no, there's no blessing of throwing something that doesn't fit with your, mm-hmm. your customer. So it's constantly being in touch with trends and being nimble enough to readdress what you're doing to service appropriately. And then you have to deal with staffing issues and uh, the growth of organization and the people's egos of what they do. It's very hard. If you're constantly trying to evolve to a healthy level, not every single day trying to change your mission statement. But if you're trying to strive for perfection and you're trying to shake the waters a bit, you don't want to scare your staff that much. So you, you do it with a lot of caution, but that's a huge challenge as well. I have 70 people out of the 100 who now have different management. So that's, that's a, and it's been a very slow process for me to be able to make this move. Last five, six months, we've spent with hundreds of hours in trying to make sure that this change then there's future of making that national Israeli footprint um, sizable and noticeable so you can really effectuate change here in Israel for our immigrants and spending a lot more time on institutional level of what can we do on an advocacy level of laws, of regulations, of being a solution peddler for not just our customers but for the state of Israel. And that itself comes with a whole slew of other challenges of partners, of bureaucracy, of egos, of institutions, of tackling a physician's um, shortage here in Israel, of tackling a, a lack of citizen residency in the North and South, of tackling an issue with lone soldiers and their issues with the army, and the army's inability to address the real concerns that lone soldiers are experiencing, and others. And uh, others well So there's a whole list of, and and The beauty of being on an institutional level besides the responsibility of fundraising and and addressing these issues, but you're invited to those kind of conversations. And once you're invited to the conversations and if you're a passionate individual and you want to effectuate cause, then you get that bug of what the heck do we do to to, to create a solution for that. And that's the fun part because it's not stagnant, but it's a tremendous challenge of of knowing when you can help and when you can't help. In the last three weeks, um, French, Community leaders knocked on our door to have a meeting here about us taking over French Alia. Argentinian community leaders knocked on our door, ask us to take. So as a passionate person who has concern, you want to say, of course, I have this entire infrastructure. Let's just create another modular staff mm-hmm. that teaks, speaks that language and let's help. On the other hand, you have to pause. Who's funding this? How do we fund it? Do we have the staff for it? Who, you know, what do our partners even say about this? Are there sensitivities? Is there a no minefield? Do we even know the politics? So those are also the challenges of wanting to rush into to help, but also holding back a bit and doing that analysis.
1: Got it. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was really uh, insightful, and I really learned a lot. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. Um, Josh, thank you so much. My we look forward. We look forward to seeing what's. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends about it as well. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Lastly, don't forget to check out my other podcast, Plugged In.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.